0: Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier.
1: Today we have a very special episode because joining us in studio is Dr. Tom Warman. Ducks Unlimited's former and recently retired chief scientist. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be back. It's great to have you back. And joining us on the phone is none other than... Our man from up in Canada, Dr. Scott Stevens with Ducks Unlimited Canada. Scott, I'm not going to even go back into your title again because people should know by now who you are. We're just going to call you Scott from Canada. Will that work? That, that works for me. <laughs> this is uh, This is a pretty neat episode for a number of reasons. Number one, we, we do have Dr. Tom Mormon here with us in the studio. The first time you have been back to headquarters since, what, December of last year? Maybe even before that.
2: Yeah, at December 31st of, geez, 2020, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. It's tough yeah. to keep yeah. counting. You had plenty know. of
3: unfinished business anyway, Tom, yeah, so it's I did. good you're back.
2: Yeah, well, Brazier hadn't finished it all. I'm a little surprised about that. But uh, well, I'm here he all doesn't that know out. me
1: very well, so.
2: I'm going to straighten all that out while I'm here.
1: First thing we have to do is have a conversation with y'all, and you know, it's, it's here in mid-October. Scott, we spoke with you in September, sort of for our regular monthly update. It seems like we do that just about every month that we're we're doing this this podcast. But this time of year is when we'd like to look north to get some reports on on migration status, habitat conditions. We've talked about kind of the importance of looking at prairie wetland conditions now to help us figure out or get a sense of what it might take to to produce good wetland conditions come next spring. And Tom, you are gonna be also um, exceptionally valuable. Oh, you're always valuable to these conversations. You're <laughs> going to be exceptionally valuable this time because you just returned from Canada yourself, right? I did. And and so you were in Saskatchewan?
2: Yep, right? western Saskatchewan.
1: And then, Scott, you have been traipsing all over the countryside up there based on your social media post, right? That's sure. right. I've been across Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. You probably wouldn't consider it traipsing, but that that's the word I chose there.
3: Yeah, well, traipsing across some parts of it, so...
1: And, and so most of, or I guess all of those travels on both of your parts were related to to hunting. And so I, I guess, you know, what we're going to do here is get some reports on your uh, hunting success, what you saw in terms of bird abundances, wetland conditions. I think the operative word there is still going to be dry, but we're going to hear from you all firsthand. So, Tom, I just want to get into this right off with you, give you first crack, us, because Scott is sort of old hand on this. we we'll would just get more of the same from him. So let's let's see what kind, <laughs> what kind of assessment you can provide for us there. Sure, Mike.
2: So basically, we drove, and the reason I drive is because I like to bring dogs, and so we brought a couple of dogs and drove for two days up to Saskatchewan. So I had a really good look at the Dakotas and... Lots of western Saskatchewan. What you find is eastern South Dakota is pretty good shape, pretty wet, lots of birds. Uh, unfortunately, that was not where we were hunting. Uh, as you get into North Dakota, a little bit of water in extreme southeast, but then it rapidly becomes pretty dry. And, of course, we diagonally crossed kind of just south of the Coteau, which is not really duck country, but you get a sense of how dry it is. There's still some wetlands that are mostly dry that you can see from the road. Across the border at Plentywood, Montana, and where we ended up going every year is near Lucky Lake, Saskatchewan. Uh, Luck Lake is a large alkaline lake. It's a big roost uh, for cranes, geese, and sometimes ducks. That country is as dry as I have ever seen it. And so, you know, what will that mean for duck production this past year? It probably means that part of the world didn't grow much. Uh, when I say dry, in the late 80s, I was a graduate student. That was the last significant extended drought, lasted about three years. Uh, those, of, those folks who listen that hunted then will recall we were in a 3 and 30 situation. Uh, pretty tough sledding. And... When I got there, I knew it was dry. Uh, as we got sort of scouting around and looking, what I saw was, wow, it really, really is dry. Uh, a lot of semi-permanent wetlands are, if they're not dry, they're really close. They may dry up before freeze up. It was hot. It was in the up, you know mid-70s and windy, which is a recipe for sucking water out of, the, out of wetlands. Most of the wetlands, one of the things in that part of the world that you can tell when it's dry is ranchers were hauling water, meaning stock ponds and and surface water wasn't available for cattle in a significant kind of way. And the other thing you see in a situation like that is ranchers are haying everything they can because forage production is really low. Lots of the temporary and seasonal wetlands have been hayed. And if you know anything about tractors, they're a heavy piece of equipment. And if you know anything about wetlands, you don't usually drive through them. They are that dry. And so I think it's, it's probably not as dry as it was in the late 80s, but it's close. And it could get there, you know, walking the fields, upland hunting, um, chasing some huns and some grouse, the dirt's like powder. And, you know, imagine yourself trying to put water and baby powder, that kind of a mix. So it's going to take pretty significant fall moisture. I hope we get it for a lot of reasons, for the ducks, especially for a frost seal, but also for those producers and cattlemen up there. They desperately need it.
1: Um, so, Scott, yeah, you you traveled and hunted in a few different places from, what's, from what Tom did. So kind of give us your your windshield and, and field-based assessment uh, along the same lines of what Tom did.
3: Yeah, very similar reports. Um, I started in Manitoba. Um, I think last time we talked about, I relocated from where I was teal hunting to a different spot because things had just gone dry. So in in Manitoba, there are a few isolated areas that that have a little bit better conditions. Um, We have an area in southwest Manitoba that last summer they got, they got a bunch of rain, like seven or eight inches of rain in a 24-hour period, had flooding and those kind of challenges. That isolated area still has okay water, but yeah, everywhere else it's dry, dry, like Tom described, you know, seasonal and even semi-permanent wetlands going dry. You know, the, the kind that you typically think of ringed by cattails, many of those are dry. Um, as I traveled to Saskatchewan, you know, I spent the first part of that trip Kind of, I, I drove through eastern Saskatchewan and and kind of stopped to chase cranes east of Saskatoon. It was very dry in there. Like like that stretch is probably the driest I've ever seen it uh, in my career. You know where we hunted cranes, there were cranes staging on some of those more permanent wetlands that had a little bit of water left in them. But there were not there were not ducks in that country. You know there were not not anywhere did I see. A spot with enough ducks that I would think about setting up and hunting those. So it, it was that dry kind of eastern Saskatchewan. I too trekked west, and uh, and we were chasing white fronts, and that country was dry. We were in a, another little isolated spot that had maintained some of the water in those semi-permanent wetlands, and and there were ducks around. So, you know, when when I think about when I think about sort of expanse it's like there was probably a bit of duck production there but pretty isolated um, spots and then I know in Alberta too we had you know when we started the spring there were there were parts of Alberta that that had some water that that was sort of the bright spot across the prairies to start with and uh, so so there's those areas probably produced a few birds but yeah you know writ large it is very dry and and probably the driest I've seen it you know, that widespread in my career also.
1: Uh, Scott, did you get up to the the Peace River Valley? Do I remember that correctly? And was that, were, were wetland conditions any different there?
3: Yeah, so that was the first time I had been up to that Peace River country. So just for the listeners Peace River is kind of an isolated little river valley that has agriculture, and and we usually usually lump it in with the with the larger prairies. It's a little further north. You go through a little boreal forest to get to it, so it's kind of this little, this little you know isolated subunit we would call it of the Prairie Pothole Region. Up there, I, I didn't see shallow water. We were hunting birds on larger staging staging lakes. Um, And those are pretty stable and provide that kind of staging habitat pretty consistently. But I did not, you know, same thing there. I did not see shallow water, seasonal, even semi-permanent water scattered across the landscape. So it was dry there too. Birds were staged on bigger water, but I would not have expected production to have been very good in that country either.
1: Tom, you mentioned that some of the seasonal and temporary wetlands had been hayed. So that tells me that those things had dried out to the point where they started producing growing vegetation. And we talked about that as sort of the natural, one of the natural steps of what occurs during drought and why it is good sort of long term for the productivity of these of these wetlands so what about vegetation conditions around the rim of some of those semi permanent wetlands? Um, Mike Anderson talked with us about this a bit here in Minnedosa or, or in Minnedosa. The waterhead was pulled back, was down away from a lot of that cattail rim. Were you seeing good cattail response in some of those mud flats or did you happen to take notice of that?
2: I did notice it, and the short answer is not really. And they looked kind of dry, and I think. Uh, It's a pretty interesting time because the water was so high that, well, let's start back. It was actually so low early, late 80s, and a lot of aspen growth around the edges. Then it flooded, and so there's lots of dead trees. And then you get down to the actual wetland margins. There's cattail. And, no, I didn't see a great response, but it's also kind of late fall, so things are starting to sort of of dry up and, you know, winter's coming kind of deal um but yeah you know i think the most of the wetlands we hunted for the past several years were really kind of soft bottomed and tough tough sledding needed a good dog kind of wetland um those are all dry so they're going to firm up Uh, a lot of that organic stuff is going to oxidize and when the water returns we'll of course be in that situation where the ducks will really really be able to respond so so while it's Tough sledding this year and populations are probably not going to be great in terms of young birds anyway. Um, this is one of those cyclical things that many people, many young hunters have never experienced. But it's going to be okay, right? The water will return. Let's just hope it's not a extended drought in terms of years, right?
1: Yeah. Scott, I have a question for you here related to sort of the progression of the h- crop harvest, agricultural harvest up there. A lot of times that's something that we talk about when, we are, when we're discussing, um, I guess, hunting success and, and the, the different tactics that people have to take during a given year. You know, the timing of the, of the harvest of some of those fields determines where the birds go and where you're going to be chasing them. What did we see in terms of that? How is the drought affecting uh, crops and, and the progression of the harvest this year?
3: Yeah, in general, I would say the harvest was earlier because things were dry and many of those crops had not done very well and kind of matured early and not produced a, a ton of, you know, seed and and that kind of thing. So most of the harvest, you know, even when I was in Saskatchewan in mid September, most of it was done. Interestingly enough, there was a lot of canola that was still flowering this time of the year, which is strange um but i guess in in some areas they got a little bit of rain that that kind of spurred that on where it had not been doing much so you know the, the i know looking at those areas you know, they had harvested some canola and then they had some that was still blooming. It, it will probably not mature and produce any more crop. But, you know, a, a good example of, you know, strange conditions yielding strange results for producers,
1: too. Yeah, so low yields on the, on the duck front and low yields on the crop front as well. So drought is tough. Drought is tough all around let's let's transition now to talk about some of your uh, some of what you saw in terms of bird response this is something that I've been curious about we've seen it feels like we heard reports well we heard early reports of abundant teal on the coast of Texas and Louisiana almost shockingly high numbers at least based on the reports that we heard and that and that seemed odd we knew or we suspected and I think the numbers will ultimately bear it out that 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 was not a result of a lot of production and kind of got some of us thinking, is this an accelerated migration? Did they kind of terminate breeding? Did did we see ducks either forego breeding altogether because of the dry conditions that they encountered or did they maybe give it one or two attempts and then they just shut it down and said, hey, we're not getting any relief? Tom, what do you think based on what you saw there, based on what you saw down south, what you've heard from a lot of your contacts and then what you saw when you got to Canada.
2: Yeah, Mike, I think this year and of course I wasn't up there in spring, so it was, you know, you got to factor that in, but based on what I saw, I do think that Blue Wings bolted early. And I would describe, you know, sometimes folks on the east coast and west coast call the middle of the country flyover country. The prairies right now for ducks in many ways, and probably this spring, were flyover country. They are that kind of dry. I think that blue wing abundance on the coast was a function of very, very dry conditions. Actually, all the way up. Um, You know, it's dry kind of the western half of the continent's dry, right? And that's the Central Flyway and the Western Mississippi Flyway are really dry. So you get blue wings on the move and they can get out of there in a hurry. And so they probably, there was production. I mean, I I hunted early teal season and shot, you know, I don't know, 10 or 15 blue wings in several hunts. And, you know, for whatever it's worth the age ratio, that was about a little less than one-to-one immatures to adults. So there was some production somewhere. But by and large, right now, I think what we're seeing, at least in my experience, is that's flyover country for ducks because there's just not much there.
1: Yeah, flyover country in the spring, definitely, and then we're also seeing flyover country now. Yeah, I
2: think so. Based on my duck hunting experience, uh, you'd find a wetland and maybe a couple of hundred ducks at best, and if you went in and hunted it, you'd get one hunt that was, you know, you might get a half a limit of birds next day next week actually they didn't come back to it so you just blew them right out of there normally in that area you can scout around and find another spot pretty easily that was not the case this time and so some of the birds we did shoot um, shot some wigeon uh, probably boreal birds and there were a lot of young year birds in that mix Um, but by and large there just weren't many birds in the country which tells me You know, if they're not there, they're either to the north in the boreal still because it was that kind of still warm. That won't last and it may be over already. That country freezes up really quick and then they're going to go and they're not going to have tons and tons of options. So it's kind of a year where if you find water, you're probably going to have a couple of decent hunts regardless of where you are, at least in the western half of the states.
1: So, Scott, I want you to follow up on that a little bit. It has, as I've thought about, I'm not going to make it to Canada this year, but as I've kind of lived vicariously through the stories and experiences of other people, I've kind of I've tried to put myself up there and say, okay, well, if we found water, I would think that we would find a lot of birds. But it's, did you see that or was it a sort of surprisingly low number of birds even in those areas where you found water? Kind of describe that interaction of bird abundance and water as you saw it this year.
3: Yeah, well... I- Yeah, as I think about that, I mean, early for teal, where we found water, we found teal. But I agree with Tom. I think production was not great. Um, My age ratios and my harvest for teal, which wasn't a big sample, but 40 or so birds, was about two to one, twice as many adults as young, which usually it would be the other way around. Um, So not a ton of production out of them. But yeah, so, you know, in Manitoba where we've found pockets of water, you know, and, and there's probably, uh, you know, there's probably uh, a threshold. You need so much water kind of in the area to to have other spots that birds can go to, like Tom described. You know, if you shoot them off of one spot, if that's the only spot, you know, for 10 miles, they're probably going to pull out and go somewhere else. If they've got 10 other spots in the area to go to, then they have other options to stick around that that area for a little bit. So you know where where we found water that was not super isolated, there were birds, and you know there were decent numbers of birds we had we had some good hunts this past weekend. I had a hunt in Manitoba again, an area that had maintained those water conditions in you know in semi permanent wetlands and you know two of us shot limits of mallards with a with a bonus black duck thrown in so that was pretty good. Um, but you know, it's, it's not like you could drive almost anywhere across the prairies and find those kind of conditions like you could in a more normal year. Um, that would be pretty commonplace in a normal year this year. It's like, yeah, there are a few spots where you could find that, uh, but not, not
1: widespread. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a year that people will, re, will remember. Scott, what do you think about Tom's, I, I guess, sort of mental idea or or hypothesis you might say that maybe some of these birds are still up in the boreal. If we had a good flyover of the prairies in the spring, those birds would have gone to the boreal. A disproportionately large number of birds might have gone to the boreal and maybe they're still hanging out there. You have any insight or any anecdotal evidence or any feel as to if, if that may still be happening?
3: Yeah, I I think that definitely happens for some birds, we know, you know, we know that things like pintails, when the prairies are dry, they overfly and move further north to Alaska and boreal areas you know, things like blue wings, probably not so much. So, you know, that may explain they were ready to head south earlier and, you know, showed up on wintering areas in good numbers. So, you know, it it depends on the species that we're talking about. But I think in general, it's definitely been warm. Like even here at my house in southern Manitoba, we've not had a real hard frost yet. Which is unusual. So it's been mild, you know. It it's been it's been dry, and you know, weather-wise, there's really been nothing to to move birds. There are a bunch of birds that move on their own just because of the time of the year, you know, like blue wings, like canvasbacks, like the cranes do. But for mallards and things like that that need a little weather to move them, no, there's been nothing to to really stir migration yet.
1: summary of what you saw in terms of wetland conditions and maybe a little report there on the birds. But now let's get to the, the important stuff of your hunting success, your hunting experience. That won't take long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Tom, let's go fishing experience. Wasn't Tom, you were, you were after those slew snakes. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Slime rockets.
1: So so Tom, let's go to you first. Then Uh, tell us about your, your hunting experience up there. What did y'all go? uh, What were y'all targeting? How successful were you? And it sounds like you might have had to call an audible, uh, Omaha, Omaha, audible Yeah, Omaha,
2: Omaha, Saskatoon, <laughs> Saskatoon. Yeah, we did. Um, so typically we hunt, uh, It's you know, we drive a lot scouting. Um, in fact, about a thousand miles over the course of about two weeks up there. And that's just the scouting part. Um, we're looking typically for two things. If we can find them, we want to find ducks feeding in fields. Uh, that typically would be a mallard pintail hunt. Didn't find that at all, so that was unfortunate, but sometimes that's the way that goes. So we also hunt wetlands sometimes, and most of our focus is on puddle ducks. When you start hunting wetlands, you start to get into things. Other species besides mallards and pintails, they're there, of course, and and we shoot them. But widgeons, uh, teal, you know, those sorts of birds all around. Not too many divers in that country. It's not really a diving duck kind of kind of country as much um, so we don't focus much on those at all incidental maybe and so what we find this year was we didn't find any field feeding birds found some field feeding geese but not many which is uncommon it's usually easy to find geese usually easy to find cranes Uh, I attribute that to the lack of water in luck lake um, that's a huge roost, and there's just not a lot of water in it. Uh, there were a handful of cranes around, and we found a couple fields of geese, which is really abnormal. They're usually pretty thick in that country. Um, then we went to duck hunting. We pretty much began focusing on water. and <laughs> Honestly, I think there might have been 10 wetlands in all that that we found. Um, you know, They were all semi-perms. Uh, the first hunt we made was a fairly big, and it's hard to hunt those big wetlands because ducks do what they always do on big water, which is land out in the middle. Um, but we hadn't we hadn't ever hunted it before, right? And so we see about 200 ducks, quite a few mallards, get permission, go in dark early in the morning and set up where we saw them. Well, that turned out to be a real bugger because it was a... One of those aspen dead margin aspen wetlands, and it had a real oddly enough a, a healthy population of beavers. Oh, boy. so we had beavers swimming around, staring us down, looking at us, and we couldn't set the decoys because it ended up being too deep. Yeah. So Jerry kind of set just a couple right in the edge of the trees. I so killed, you didn't
1: go, you didn't visit the wetland the night before because you didn't want to we disturb. We didn't the want to bust bird, those didn't,
2: birds didn't, out yeah. there because that's the recipe for disaster. Given yeah. how dry it was. So I shot one mallard, and then I decided, okay, well, let me take a walk. And I found a, on the north end of that wetland a nice shallow slope was a little bit more open. So we moved and set up there in a more normal manner for duck hunting with decoys and whatnot. And the ducks were just tough, right? They all wanted to, to not work well, characteristic of adult birds, yep. right? Yep. And so we managed, I think in that hunt, maybe six birds, Three of us, six birds. For those of you that don't know, the limit in Canada is eight a day. So that was a, you know, I was happy. We saw a few birds. Dogs got some work. We yeah. both have puppies yeah. or young dogs.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I yeah. know this would be the first real year that Peck has had an opportunity. Yeah, to
2: last year was a dogs. tough year for him, and his first year he blew a knee. So yeah, we're he's got a <laughs> he's a hard luck dog. You blew a shoulder. I did blow a shoulder this year. Yeah, <laughs> that took a little while. But uh, red,
3: red shirt season for both of you. <laughs>
2: well, not anymore. So he got some really great work, despite the fact that there weren't a lot of birds. He got. The lights turned on
1: yeah,
2: like a young dog needs, which is really cool. That day we shot, I think I shot a mallard. Uh, we shot some widgeon. Big old redhead came cruising by, so I dropped him. It was pretty interesting because he was fully, looked like dead of winter redhead. Mm. Yeah, And I was also noticing, and this is observation, I'll be curious to see what Scott thinks about this, but I noticed that the few mallards we were seeing, like scouting and looking them over with binocs, the drakes were, were pretty far along. Normally up there, there's a bit of an art to picking drakes. You're looking yeah. for just a few green feathers on the head or some bill color, that kind of thing. Would not have been a problem to pick them out had yeah. they been been around. So that tells me maybe a lot of them just for forego breeding and went to molt, molting wetlands, probably up in the boreal, sat around, molted, and really didn't do much for production. Um, just an observation. And yeah. Well, so, I'll tell
1: you, I had a conversation or an email exchange with Michael Fertman yeah. Just a couple of days ago, and he had just returned from North Dakota. He made the exact same observation: the birds were were uncharacteristically far along in terms of their plumage development for this time of year. He also found them to be fatter this time mm-hmm. this uh, this time of year than than normal. So
2: yeah, birds. The birds we did shoot were were really fine eating, and we ate them all up there. So we didn't bring any home. That's kind of unusual as well, because usually I try to bring a you know a legal possession limit home, but. Um, so yeah, it was tough. And the rest of the time, we we'd scout a wetland, and you know, again, hundred birds, hundred fifty. Go in, kill, you know, three, four, six, something like that. And had a couple scratch hunts, which That's is tough. tough Sled, I mean, and unusual you're in Saskatchewan. If you scratch, man, you're doing you're either doing something real wrong, or it's just really tough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, or
3: you need a remedial course if you're doing yeah, that. Yeah, well, maybe so.
2: Well, yeah, you didn't invite me, so I don't know. I, you know, Normally, you'd take me out there and and lose I me. D- Scott takes I did me. invite you. I did
1: invite yeah, you. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Scott took me hunting first time, got to got there in the dark at the truck. Next mm. thing I know, he's gone.
1: Uh, he does. Over the hill. But I he took you hunting.
2: Uh, he did take me hunting. I didn't know where he went. So I just listened for the He did shotgun. his part. I listened for the shotgun reports and echo <laughs> located in on him. Since then, I've called him the prairie stalker. Uh, so, yeah, so it was tough. Um, always an enjoyable trip. And we did, in fact, call Saskatoon, Saskatoon, Saskatoon. The weather was so mild. And if you know anything about fishing in Canada and fishing in fall, fish no winter's coming, man. They were on the feed. Mm. And so we were staying in a cabin, Cynthia who works for DU yep. Canada? Cynthia Calio Edwards works for DU Canada. She has a cabin. Her family has a cabin on Lake Defenbaker. So we dropped the boat in and really had some fine northern pike fishing. Yeah, uh, sl- slinging spoons over weed beds and caught a lot of fish and had a lot of fun doing that. You know, the dogs, the dogs don't enjoy that much, but Jerry and I did. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Not much retrieving opportunity. Not really.
2: For I haven't them. taught them to retrieve pike yet. Yeah. But so yeah, that was that kind of year. And you know, it's always great to be up there. Uh, great people, lots of fun. Just tough sledding for yeah. birds. Yeah,
1: Scott. What about you? I know the after your the last report we had with you, where you had been chasing blue blueing teal. I think you headed west a few weeks after that and paired up with Jean uh, Jean Michel DeVinc, DU Canada biologist up there. And I guess you guys went after cranes first, right?
3: Yeah, we had some guests in for cranes and so I was east of Saskatoon and you know in, in traditional areas that we've hunted for a number of years for cranes there were there were still cranes in that country now what's interesting about cranes is they don't need much water to, to roost in kind of enough to Sometimes I joke and say just enough to cover their toes, but mm-hmm. that's pretty accurate. They don't need much water, um,
1: but they like a little bit to feel safe. They're also pretty sensitive to those early cold snaps because of that, right?
3: Yeah, um, but but cranes I would describe as really early migrant birds anyway. You know, we think of them kind of peaking at the tail end of September, early October. So yeah. I was there in mid-September and numbers were still building. But yeah, there were there were decent numbers of cranes around when we have more water, they're kind of they're kind of all roosting on a big wetland that that holds I don't know twenty thousand birds or so. In instead, this year that was dry and they were kind of scattered across the landscape, so it spread them out a bit, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. So we had some good crane hunts.
1: Um, okay, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there. You and I have had conversations about cranes before, and I think you told me. Maybe I'm making this up. I know you and I had a conversation about crane crane calls. So one of the things that we're able to do now with the new technology we have here is, I think we kind of dubbed this in on one of our previous episodes, but we have an opportunity to do it live here. So here's some crane calls for us. It's a beautiful sound. It is. It is. Cranes flying overhead. That actually apparently was recorded in Nebraska there. So if you're out this, this year and you hear that sound... Uh, Look up, look around. That sound carries for miles, Uh, and so it's they're fascinating bird. Did you? Did I make up the part about you having a crane call? Well. No. Apparently um, not with that hesitation. I, I, yeah, I had a crane call. <laughs> I'm not talking electronic either. Can't do that. No,
3: no, no, you can't do that. I, I had a crane mouth call. I think one of the guys who was up left that with me. My challenge is to blow the crane call correctly, you need to be able to trill oh, yeah. your tongue. Yeah, that's right. That's um, what
1: we did. Yeah
3: yeah, roll your R's. And I am not able to do that yet. <laughs> you, you, that that should have been on the list during the pandemic of figure that out, but that did
1: not get done. So, so. that training that I, that, that instructional training I provided during that previous podcast was not enough.
3: No, no, didn't help uh, me. Okay. So I don't know. Mormon, can you do that? Can you roll your R's?
2: I cannot. And I think that actually might be genetic. So you might be just Sol, like I am.
3: Yeah, I think you yeah. can train
2: yourself. Yeah, we, we,
3: we yeah. need to find somebody who can do that to blow a crane call when we're up there because I think it would be super effective. Like I've seen the YouTube videos where guys are doing that and man, they sound good. And it carries forever and the birds will come to
2: it. So maybe Maybe we should take you to an oral surgeon and get you like a Gene Simmons kind of surgery. <laughs> <laughs> then you'd be able to flap your tongue around a little better. Maybe, yeah.
3: Like maybe that would work. Um, yeah. If if I'm not going to learn it, then yeah, some some sort of six million dollar man work might might be the right ticket.
1: All right. Okay. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so you had did have success with the cranes? Your crane silhouette decoys uh, came in handy, right? Yep, they did. Crane silhouettes. Um, I was
3: actually testing some new crane socks uh, that that I had too, and those, you know, with the right day with wind. Those are pretty effective because they give you a little movement in the decoys and just add to the realism. So, so those those
1: were pretty slick. Um, had good success on cranes. Tom, did y'all get in on some cranes? I know you mentioned them. Did y'all we
2: saw them? And we had a real hard time patterning the cranes that we did see. The numbers were down around Luck yeah. Lake in general, and. The wetland that we typically rely on for crane hunting to supply our cranes out to the field kind of deal was dry. And so down towards the little town of Luck Lake, that lower end of Luck Lake itself had a bit of water. And so most of the crane activity had moved east Mm -hmm. and south of us. We saw them. We just couldn't figure out the right kind of setup, and they were really... They'd be there one day, and then they'd be somewhere else the next, almost like chasing yeah. snow geese. In so you guys
1: were just trying to pass shoot them, or did you, would, did well, you have Well, We would have set up on were them okay.
2: had we been able to, to get them to do... to cooperate, yeah. so to speak, but they just didn't. We also have some places that we can pass shoot, but yeah. that lake was dry, so that eliminated that opportunity.
1: Yeah. So, Scott, what did y'all do after the cranes? You go after geese? Do you, do you hunt geese at all?
3: Yeah, so... So I trekked further west, west of Saskatoon, and met a few other DU friends, and we chased white fronts, Um, and and there were ducks out there too, so we shot a few ducks, and uh, white fronts was was interesting, Um, you know, didn't know quite what to expect, weren't sure what conditions were going to be like, there was still plenty of water to stage white fronts, we found birds, got, you know, got permission, ended up hunting Three days within about a mile and a half of you know where we had started, all the fields were were right there in close proximity, and yeah, and we had good success on white fronts. It was a little bit tough though, like many times white fronts are are pretty friendly to the decoys and and mm. pretty easy to deal with, and these were tougher. Um, and out of our out of our three day tally, I think we killed forty three white fronts. And we had three juvenile birds. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, at, at least from that sample, you know, that would lead me to believe that conditions, wherever those birds were breeding across the Arctic, was not great. You know, may have been late and production not great on the, those. But again, a fairly small sample. Um, I did shoot a banded white front.
1: Oh, nice. Where was it banded? Yeah, it was banded as
3: an adult uh, in 2004. Oh wow! On on the north slope of Alaska. So that's at least a 17 year old bird. Wow! Um, so just thinking about you know how much country that bird saw during its life and how many migrations it's made was it's pretty cool.
1: Was that a goose or a gander? That was a male. Okay. All right. Well, that's better, better a male that, than I, I get. Well, I don't know. They pair for life. So you you know, got she, any more. She'll, that's right. That's right. She'll go off and find, if, if she's as old as that guy, then she'll go off and find her another good male. Right. What else then do we need to, do we need to cover there on your, uh, on your hunting success?
3: Well, maybe, maybe I'll say where we did get into ducks out there, like we were hunting white fronts and there were big waves of mallards and pintails working the field there. My friends were, probably a little bit grumpy because we were close to the white front limit and I wanted to get the white front limit before we started in on the ducks. So ducks were flying and active a bit before we started in on them. And I think that day we, we each shot half a limit in the morning and then we came back out in the afternoon in the same spot and shot a few more birds. But if we had been focused on ducks, we could have shot a limit of ducks.
1: Yeah, they probably reminded you of that throughout the rest of the day, the rest of the week, right? That, uh, that y'all had to pass up your ducks that morning.
3: Yeah, well, there was plenty of debate in the blind that day. It's like, let's shoot these ducks. It's like, no, no, there are geese coming. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, know, you have to check in with Dr. Adair next time you have him in because he was the one wanting to shoot ducks. Oh,
1: okay. Well, we got a question about that here just a second. Um, I will say that I saw some report yesterday about uh, Arctic goose production. I think there's mixed reports from different parts of of the production areas. I've been trying to connect with Ray Alisoskis to kind of get him on to give us the annual update on sort of what we can glean from the available um, climatological information about the likely, likely hatch, likely productivity of the different goose colonies. I think Wrangell Island... Uh, it was certainly another bright spot from everything I've heard, but I think once you get into the Central Arctic and and Eastern Arctic, maybe it's a, a bit of a mixed bag. So let's move on here. I got a question for you, Scott. I know you are never shy about developing new types of decoys, whether it be your your silhouettes or where. <laughs> Two, you, two-dimensional ducks. <laughs> two-dimensional ducks, skinny ducks for skinny times. I also, um, I also, so I, I kind of wonder, have you been experimenting with any Other types of decoys this year. Not not any new varieties, I guess. I I did like now. Let's not now. Let's not restrict it to to waterfowl decoys either. What 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 was it called?
2: I actually know what it's called, so I'll remind Scott about the song dogs. The song.
1: Oh,
3: okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So (laughs) tell us about that. So we should talk about this because. You know, what I find is, you know, most of us have been hunting long enough, like a really new and novel idea in duck hunting is kind of hard to come by. You know, like, yeah, you see variations of stuff and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, we've done something like that before. But this was a totally new one for me. So... Um, and I'll credit our, our new CEO, who's just started for Ducks Unlimited Canada, Larry Komeyer. Um, he had joined on one of the crane hunts that we had guests in for, and we were driving around and scouting and talking and he said, have you used the coyote decoy? And I was like, uh, you know, for shooting coyotes, and he was like, no, when you're when you're goose hunting or whatever, and it's like, no, tell me more about that. And so his story was, if you have a big field that birds are using, and you want to set up in one part of the field, you can put out either, uh, you know, a full body coyote decoy, or I was able to find uh, a skinny coyote decoy, a two dimensional one, um, to put out that the geese. We'll see that and kind of not land in that part of the field, but he described it as you can kind of squeeze them over into the part of the field that that you want them to be in, where your decoys are set up. So um, so yeah, I had this decoy along uh, when we were hunting white fronts and, and uh, my partners were a little skeptical of that. But, you don't but say, I would have never thought <laughs> that. Yeah, yeah, but but got a big kick out of having the Song Dog, you know. There was lots of discussion <laughs> that that's what the decoy was called, you know, on the uh-huh. box it said Song Dog. So, you know, we were always talking about do we should we break out the Song Dog and then there was discussion about might we get rifle bullets rained our way if we had the Song Dog out and had the wrong angle between the road and our blind and and <laughs> some of those things. But but I'll admit it's uh it's that's a new one for me. Like I had not heard that concept of you know putting out a coyote decoy that would kind of cause birds to shy away from one part of the field or maybe you could even put it in an adjacent field and have birds you know shy away from that and come to where you had decoys. so I thought that was pretty cool. so I'll test it out. I don't have enough trials yet to see whether it's effective or not
2: but. So, so here's a here's a stimulated a similar idea for me that you should try as well is maybe you get yourself <laughs> four or five mannequins <laughs> stick them out there about four hundred yards all around you. And that'll focus those birds right (laughs) into you, man. I can see you going down the road. Dress them in blaze orange, by the way. Yeah. You're
3: thinking put, put them at like 45 yards around the decoy spread?
2: No, 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 no. I'm talking about putting about 400 yards out. So those de- so the geese are coming. And they say, man, there's a dude over there. Let's go over here.
3: <laughs> yeah. We could, we could try that, you know. And, and I guess you think about all the time and energy that humans have put into things like scarecrows to get birds to, you know, to deter birds. Um, you know, th- this is an old challenge. So, uh, Maybe it's not all that novel, but that that was a new one for me in thinking about waterfowl hunting.
1: It, it does add a different level of complexity, another variable to the equation. Whenever the ducks and geese just aren't finishing right, not only now do you have to consider wh- whether you need to re you need to move or reconfigure your duck decoys, you also need to. Decide whether you need to reconfigure, reposition your your coyote decoy or your mannequins. Right. That's right. That may be
2: a little much. You can move the mannequin over about twenty yards. I think this baby's going to work. <laughs> 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 yeah.
3: Well, it, it definitely made for good conversation. There's no uh, doubt about did, that. We did put it out one day, and and I will say, the day that we put it out is the day that we shot a limit of white fronts. We shot some ducks, and I shot the banded birds. Well, so, there you uh, go. Now, have you,
1: know. you have you gone? Have you seen? talked to your CEO since then did he say you really fell for that <laughs> he,
3: he, he did he did not say that okay. but when we talked about it he said he's got like three of them three coyote decoys that that he will deploy to you know to squeeze the birds where he wants them to be so so i i think he's figured it out and used it effectively i, I i'm still i'm still uh you know green on the deployment of the song dog decoy but
1: but i'm working on it that would have been my fears that i would that he would have been just pulling my leg. You weren't concerned about that? You, no, I'm... <laughs> you, were you willing to try maybe, maybe, anything? Maybe that
3: says something about either my gullibility or <laughs> my willingness to try new things.
1: But no, I was like, hey, that's worth a shot. You know, what do you got to lose? All right. Okay. So let's move on here and start to wrap this up. Tom, what's next? What, what do you have, I guess, here over the next few months? What are your hunting plans? Your, I'm, I'm sure you're eyeing it up. Any more trips or anything of that nature? And, and I guess also just kind of from a personal perspective, since you've been retired, what you've been up to and kind of what's on uh, what's on the future here? yeah no trips are planned at the moment
2: um we've contemplated a couple you know maybe out to the midwest or down to the gulf coast later this winter but we'll see um working on renewing a duck lease we'll see if we do or don't if we do then i have some management work to do out there get the tractor over there and do some work getting a little late for that so that needs to get done um obviously working on some deer hunting land Mm -hmm. so got to in fact Head over there tomorrow and get some some work done on that. Um, retirement's been been really fun. I do have to say the first uh, six months or so was downtime with a shoulder. So try not to try not to uh, tear your rotator cuff. <laughs> it's not very pleasant,
1: especially when you have a young
3: pup.
2: Yeah. Young pup needs to go, yeah. and
3: I wonder. I wondered why you weren't pitching anywhere this postseason, but yeah. now, now it
2: makes sense. Well, uh, you know, the scouts had me almost signed up for the Cincinnati Reds, and the downside of that is my mom's the biggest Cincinnati Reds fan, and I'd have hated to have her yelling at the TV screen telling me how bad I was. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, so no, my contract went away for the Reds, but that's okay. Um, so yeah, I'm just. Uh, Doing a little work here and there with DU on a contract and then puttering around on land. Um, We're planning a few, uh, Anne Marie and I are planning some road trips, one of which will be to Prairie Canada. She hadn't been up there in a long time. Probably a spring trip. I'm kind of interested to see it when the water comes back. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Now having seen it so dry, I want to see that explosion of life that happens when the water comes. So I'll be keeping an eye on uh, wetland conditions up there. Try and time it with that. That'll be a really fun trip. So yeah, things like that. And all good. And it's really great to be back here uh, at Memphis. See a lot of my friends. I miss them.
1: Scott, what about you? I'm sure you have a few more hunting trips planned. Uh, Is Delta Marsh on one of those? Uh, Is that in the future? I've have found myself wondering what conditions are like over there, kind of given the drought. Uh, Any any insight on that?
3: Yeah. So I have a few reports from Delta Marsh. The water's super low. In fact, many areas that I had spent time on are completely dry and growing up in germinating cattails and some of those things. So the water is very low. There are a few birds still out there. I was out for a meeting last night with some folks at, at Delta Marsh, but yeah, conditions are tough. There isn't a ton of food there because of the low water conditions. There wasn't great submerged aquatic vegetation that grew so so that's tough so i'm not i'm not sure i will venture out there again given conditions but yeah i hope i hope there are still a few either goose hunts or or especially mallard hunts somewhere around here in manitoba and then and then i did get an invite to come down this winter to down down in you this neck of the woods by by our friend Dr. Curtis Hopkins. So uh-huh. I would like to do that. Um, yeah, you should in December or something or yeah. January. But we'll see if I'm able to put that together.
1: Yeah, for sure, it'd be good. Uh, make sure you swing by here. We'll actually have you in studio for the first time ever. All right, maybe I can find my jacket yeah. somewhere.
3: We'll around look around. There we might be in able the closet to
2: buy- that keeps getting lost in the mail. <laughs> yeah, keep me posted on that deal. If you come, I'll cook dinner for you or something. You might have to yeah. supply the meat because I hadn't killed a lot, but coots,
3: coots. Uh, he'll yeah. pull some coots out yeah, of the
2: I'll freezer, get some coots and gallinules yeah. out.
3: Yeah, maybe we can go in there, Mormon, and we can rummage around and find the closet with all the swag in it.
2: Yeah, maybe get us, get us some. Who knows? They might have mannequins here you can take back for your hunting operation. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: That'd Make sure be you bring I a trailer. Can
3: use a few. I don't have any of those yet.
1: Well, guys, this has been fun. It's been it's been great from a number of levels to to get both of you here on the on the podcast. Tom, great having you back here at headquarters in studio with us. Thanks for joining us. And Scott, as always, thanks to you for for spending your time with us. And I know you have a few other things to get to today, so we'll let you go. Thanks for joining us, both of you. Thanks, Mike. Yep, happy to be here. A special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Tom Mormon and Dr. Scott Stevens. We greatly appreciate their expertise and their firsthand insights from the prairies this year. As always, we thank our producer, Chris Isaac and Clay Baird for the great work that they collectively do getting these podcasts out to you and to you, the listeners we thank you for your time, and we thank you for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks.